0: To the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I guess I don't have to preach because Faith just brought it, man. Can you guys give it up for that authentic moment? Thank you, Faith. It's so powerful to be reminded, like Faith was saying, that. Um, you know, God's grace is both for when we don't measure up and also to empower us to be the things that we cannot be in ourselves and how he slowly transforms us into more and more godly men and women. Uh, such a powerful reminder and such a moment of vulnerability and and faith. Again, I just want to thank you for that. Um, so as I said, uh, earlier, Pastor Jason and uh, some of our other mission members are currently in Spain uh, serving missionaries um, by providing uh, child's care while they are at a conference, Uh, that is the missionaries, they're they're meeting at a conference and they're uh, preparing for the next season. Um, And so the, the mission has gone over there to just do a small but amazing and powerful part, which is Uh, to care for the kids of the missionaries and at the same time also to provide worship. Uh, They're having an awesome time over there, uh, but they're also serving. And so keep them in your hearts and prayers. My name is Ricardo, uh, technically Ricardo Cordero, technically Ricardo, Ricardo Cordero Soto. My mom always reminds me that that second last name needs to be there. If not, I can see the chancla coming from Puerto Rico all the way to hit me remember that's your last name <laughs> um, anytime she sees it not displayed anywhere she's like tu eres soto también you're a soto too you know um, and uh, I'm uh, a, I am a math professor at California Baptist University and the reason I mentioned that is because it has to do with a little bit of a story that I'm going to share um, and and when we dive into the sermon in the scripture it might look like the story is not related but then we'll see I think hopefully <laughs> how it ties in um, I, uh, I'm of, of course I'm a math professor which means I to be a math professor at a university level you usually have to get... A graduate degree, uh, typically a PhD. And so I had to do that. And trust me, it doesn't mean I'm smart. It means I worked very hard and lost hair and did a lot of things uh, uh, that, um, yeah, really cost me. (laughs) Carlos is like really enjoying that. I just made fun of my bald head. Thank you, Carlos. Um, Now, Here's how the journey started for me. I had, a, I had an, uh, an influential high school professor. His, his name was uh, Medina Rivera, Francisco Medina Rivera. And he was a, just a powerful teacher. Uh, he, he still is to this day, though. He's retired. Um, and he influenced me in such a profound way, not just because of the fact that he was good at math, but uh, how he inspired others that really didn't care about academics, that didn't care about math, to believe in themselves, students that have been told their whole lives that they weren't smart enough and that they couldn't do well enough. Uh, he inspired them to be better. And so at some point I realized I, I wanted to be able in some small capacity to at least mimic what he was doing. Uh, but on the side, I, I always thought of Medina Rivera as this professor that knew so much math. And so there was a part of me that just wanted this knowledge. I want to know as much math as possible. This further uh, developed because in undergrad, still back in Puerto Rico, uh, I had a professor. Um, he, I mean, he has an American name because he was from the States. He's from, uh, he was from St. Louis, Missouri, and New Mexico, one of the two. Um, his name is uh, Martin Engman. And uh, he, um, he, he was highly influential in my life as well. Uh, because, well, the way he treated me, um, the way he treated me as a student, he never he never allowed me to feel like I was a lesser person. He never used the pedestal of being a professor to kind of diminish me in any way. On the contrary, he always brought me up, even though I was just this lowly student that didn't know much at the undergraduate level, even. Um, and so, again, I saw this guy that knew so much math. And my goal was, one day, I'm going to get a PhD, and I'm going to know not all math, but most of it. <laughs> that, was, that was my naive thinking. I'm going to learn n- not all of math, but most of it. Um, and so I kept this idea in my mind that at some point, I was going like, to become this like, really big head of mathematics that knew so much math. Um, and so quickly, when I got to grad school, by then I moved to Arizona State University. I get to grad school. Um, and the first semester, I get crushed. First, I realized that there were other students that were far more advanced coming in their first year of graduate school than I was. My first midterm score uh, in my first semester in grad school was an eight out of forty. Uh, I cried all spring break. <laughs> I watched Lord of the Rings the whole trilogy, and I got over it, but you know that, that helped me feel better um, but it was it was definitely uh, a check of reality, because here I was aspiring to know all the math in the world, uh, and then uh, I'm I'm already behind so many other talented mathematicians, um, and so the, the the journey continued, and and things took a different turn. I wanted to work originally in in one area of mathematics, and then I ended up working in another just because life takes turns. You plan things and they change. Um, I wanted to go back to Puerto Rico to work there. But things changed. I met my wife. She's a, med- uh, she's a medical resident. She's right now at the hospital. Um, and so we stuck around here. Um, things changed. Um, and, uh, but the, the only disappointment I really had was um, at some point I realized there's so much math. No one knows all the math. And I will never come even close to knowing a little bit about all of the math. Because, for one, it's constantly changing. Um, there's, there's active fields of research. My mom always laughed at that. She says, research in math, two plus two is four. Like, what the heck are you researching? There's never gonna be a new result in math. I'm like, mom, it's a little more advanced than that, okay? S- a slightly a little more advanced than that. Um, you know, and, and so it's ongoing, it's never changing. And what, what eventually I realized you know, because at first, at first it really affected me because I had built up so many years in my head this image of who I was going to be, like this, like this guru of mathematics, right? And still my students see me this way, right? Um, but what I realized is that when you become an academic, when you get a Ph.D. in a, in a certain area, um, you're becoming a student for life you really are becoming a student for life because uh, PhDs, usually what they're doing is the rest of their lives, they're learning more about a specific area, just one little area that they specialize in. That's their area of research, and they continue growing in that area, and that's about it. So you're you're a student for life. And at first, that was frustrating, but then I had a realization, an epiphany, if you will. At some point, I realized, okay, the point of all of this wasn't to learn all math, but to learn to think mathematically. And so if I can learn to think mathematically, I can enjoy the process even though it feels like I've never gotten there, I can always say I'm learning more and more to think mathematically. That that realization helped me, uh, it, it just helped focus on the right thing and not the wrong thing. So for f- so many years, the moral of the story is I missed the point and I didn't enjoy Uh, Being a mathematician the point is you're a mathematician no matter what age you are no matter what level you are You're a mathematician because you're at some level Familiar with some simple math puzzle to one that's very advanced and I should have realized that earlier and enjoyed it So I missed the point and sometimes we miss the point. We're gonna come back to that To that moral of the story at the end of the message so this is going to seem like a totally like weird segue. In fact, the segue as it moves is going to like crash because it has no connection whatsoever. But uh, I recently asked a lot of my friends, a lot of my church mission friends uh, to share um, and, and other friends just what, what are some of the problems that get in their way in the way of their happiness. What, what are some of the things that get in the way of our happiness, of our daily happiness, or of our daily joy? I, I think joy is a better word. And so there's just a list that friends have shared with me of things that hinder our joy, things that prevent us from being joyous people. Financial struggles, not being able to pay off your debt at the rate that you want, or not being able to pay them off at all. Worries about your kids when they're not at home. Or when they leave because they've grown up, what will they do? What will they decide? What will they become? Will they continue on the path that we've worked so hard uh, to teach them? Work stress, family concerns, family health concerns, being haunted by the past. Ooh, that, I, I can relate to that one. Not being good enough. Fears of not being good enough, uh, not, not a good enough parent, not a good enough employee, not a good enough husband, not a good enough wife, not a good enough son or daughter, being too busy, grieving lost ones, the grief, which is normal, but the, the you know, it, 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 in a sense we grieve and, and there's a phase to it, but at the same time it sticks with us, there's a part of it that's always there, we're always grieving. Not having enough time for other things that we want to do other than work and just the basic everyday activities that a family does. The fear of not being, again, good enough. It came up a lot. Not being a good enough father, mother, wife, or husband. Not being a good enough provider. Not just, you know, and this, this one comes from men. Men fear often, oh, am I a good enough provider, not just financially, but am I a good enough provider? I, this came up in, 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 the, in this little survey I did, an in-house survey. Am I a good enough provider of emotional support to my family? Am I a good enough provider of all these different things that we're concerned about? Um, providing to our family the emotional support to our kids, to our spouses. Fear of being average, this list is just the tip of the iceberg, but as you can see, there's a lot of things that get in the way of our daily joy. I, I have a list of my own that's, it's, it's an appendix to this one. It's a, it's a long list. We worry, we worry, we fear, we stress over things that sometimes we can control a bit, but for the most part, we can't control And so my goal today as we dive into scripture now is to ask ourselves, how can we deal with those obstacles to our joy? What is a biblical way? What is a godly way? What is a life-changing way that we can move those obstacles to our joy out of the way? Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be perfect joy because we're in a fallen world and we have problems. We have lost loved ones. We have so many problems that are real. It's not trying to ignore the fact that the problems are real. But hopefully we can have gritty joy. Gritty joy. That's joy in the midst of also being sorrowful. Paul says it. We're considered as, I think he says along the line something of, we're considered as sorrowful yet always rejoicing in one of his letters. So how can I find that gritty joy? And our main passage for that, is Romans 12.12. Romans 12.12. It's short and it's sweet. And keep in mind the context as we dive into this now. I want you to keep in mind the context of this. The context is, how can I deal with the obstacles to my joy? How can I deal with the things that are preventing me from being happy? Overall, net, Joyous, net happy, overall, in spite of, pardon the expression, the crap in our lives, right? Rejo- uh, in Romans twelve twelve, it says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. It's a simple recipe, but it has a lot in it. It's a short uh, scripture, but there's so much to unpack in it. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. When I think about hope, my, my initial reaction is like, well, I don't know if I want to be happy about hope. Like, I hope I can pay this off in time. Like, I hope I can go to Europe in two years. I hope I can go on another trip. I hope, uh, I hope my mom no longer has these health issues that she's dealing with. Now more serious stuff, right? Um, I hope I, I can help a people that I care about in my life financially. I hope, and the list goes on, right? I hope the alarm goes off for that car. (laughs) I hope be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer as the alarm continues. (laughs) Not today, Satan, not today. (laughs) (laughs) So point number one, as we explore Romans 12, 12, point number one. We can rejoice in anticipation knowing that our hope in God is a sure hope. We can rejoice in anticipation knowing that our hope in God is a sure hope. See, when Paul uses hope, he doesn't use it the way I just described, right? Thank God the alarm, car, the alarm of the car went off, but it was, that wasn't the hope that he's talking about. I was hoping it would go off, but this is a a sure hope because when you hope in God, this is a a promise. The hope in God is a promise. So we can rejoice in anticipation knowing that our hope in God is a sure hope. Not necessarily now, but there is a sure type of hope in God. So Romans 12.12 says we rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Now, why is it that I know that I can rejoice in hope in that verse? As as we just said in bullet point number one, how can I know that the hope in God is sure? Simple. In Hebrews 11.1, we are told so. Now, faith is the assurance. That's the guarantee, right? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Let's just focus on that a moment. The the assurance of things hoped for. This isn't a false, maybe mostly true, this is guaranteed promise of God, the way that when He promises, it's always true and guaranteed. So I can rely on that, knowing that that hope will not fail. But we got to be careful because we're not told exactly what this hope is. So you can't just assume that it means I can hope that he's going to fix my problem. It can't be that. In fact, it's not on the screen, but Paul has used this language in the same letter of Romans. We read Romans twelve twelve. He said, rejoice in hope. You just go seven chapters back. In Romans 5, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So what we're rejoicing for is something a little deeper and something a little more uh, or or something a little different than hoping that he's going to fix the problem. And I don't think we'll be able to fully understand what that means till the end of the message. But keep in mind, the hope that we have that is guaranteed is the coming glory, the glory that's here, but also the coming glory of God and how it transforms us. That's a guaranteed hope that we can have. And we rejoice in that anticipation, knowing that it's a sure hope. Point number two. Now, while you're waiting, right, because you know it's a guaranteed hope, while you are waiting, you are praying more than you are controlling. This is where I and many of us fail because sometimes our prayer lives are hindered by our problems even though our problems are supposed to turn us to prayer sometimes what we do is we pray really quick because we got to go and solve the problem and so we forget i mean and i this is you know i'm t- preaching to myself sometimes my prayer time in the morning is really quick because i got to go and prep for class and i got to go and deal with all these things that are in the back of my mind uh, you know i got to get to this uh, god help me whew, out the door you know prayed Read the Bible a bit, out the door. But, but here's the idea, is that we have to be a people that prays while we wait for the hope of the glory of God, while we wait for that guaranteed promise, we've got to be willing to pray more than we control. And I, I'm not, I don't mean quantitatively more. I mean your heart has to be bent more to devoting said problem to prayer than to your control. Because most of the problems that stress us, we can't control. <laughs> I mean, it's frustrating. That's why I hit the table, because I can't control the problems that I wish I could control. They're out of my hand. They involve other people that make decisions by themselves, and I can't bend them. There's people in my life that I care, that I I really want them to come to Christ, and I can't force them. And so all I can do is devote myself to prayer, not control. In the past with those people that I care about, some of them even family members, you know, I would just try to control it by going and speaking to them about Jesus. And I came off as a religious fanatic, even though I never spoke like a religious fanatic. That's what they heard. And it was because I was convinced that I could control the problem, but I can pray the problem. That's what I can do more than I can try to control it. It doesn't mean we don't, it doesn't mean we become spiritually lazy in the sense that we pray and then we don't do anything. We do do our part to an extent, but our heart has to be convinced that prayer is not just the start. It is the foundation of how we deal our problems. It is the foundation. I have to be a person that prays more than I control, not quantitatively, but my intention, my thoughts need to be more geared towards how God is sovereign, how he can control things versus how much I can control. So while you wait for the promised hope, pray more than you control. This is so true. It's not just in that Romans 12-12 passage. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. I've known I, I, I often use verse 7 in this passage. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. I've always had verse 7 in mind. Verse 7 is the one that says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, it so happens that when you when you know when you do a little bit of the exegesis of what the author intended, verse 6 is really where, uh, where, where the issue is. In fact, this is a note, a commentary on the ESV study Bible about this passage. It says, the participle casting modifies the main verbal phrase, humble yourselves, from verse 6. Worry, in other words, is a form of pride because it involves taking concerns upon oneself instead of entrusting them to God. So, when we try to control more than we try to pray the problem, it is a form of pride. See, what we do instead is we trust God as the loving Father that He is, knowing that He knows what He's doing, though sometimes I don't understand. But we trust in that. So, please understand, as that passage says, in order for me to... Deal with a problem, I have to be willing while I wait for the hope that's guaranteed to pray it more than I try to control it. Because it's a form of pride to try to control it more than how you think God can deal with it. So while we wait, we can rejoice in hope. This is the anticipation of joy. But there's a key issue, right? Right? When I when I wait for something to happen, here I am waiting for the coming glory of God. Yes, I can rejoice knowing that at the end of history, there's going to be a happy ending where the body of Christ is with Jesus, and there is no death, no hurting, no pain, no suffering. All that is gone. But Lord, how do I deal with my joy now? Like, sure, I can get excited about that. It's like when when my wife and I went to Italy. there was a little bit of uh, of joy rejoicing. (laughs) I don't know what joy is. There's a little bit of rejoicing when I'm on the plane because I'm like, yeah, I'm going to Italy. So I'm anticipating the promise. Well, if the plane doesn't crash in the ocean, right? (laughs) But I'm anticipating the joy of being in Italy. But that doesn't change the fact that I'm in an airplane like this. And that the guy next to me, his head has fallen on my shoulder, and he's mouth-breathing as he sleeps on me. Like, I'm still not fully joy, God. Like, yes, I know. I'm celebrating. I can I can visualize it. I can see it right now. I'm so happy I'm going to be in Italy. Right? Like, this is going to be awesome. But this is still a reality here. And it's funny when I think about, like, in simple terms like that. But we have real things that are affecting us today. We have people that we care for, that we've invested our lives into, and that they've not necessarily corresponded to that. We have sickness, sickness in our own lives and that other people are experiencing. And even though I know that one day there's not going to be any sickness and no pain, my family member is still sick right now. They're still suffering right now. That person that has cancer has to throw up every time they go to a chemotherapy session. That's a reality. So how could I possibly, Lord, okay, I get it. I'm anticipating. I know you're going to fix things. Make them all right. I know that's coming. How can I experience gritty joy now? Because I can't change the fact that I am mourning some of these things. In fact, it's biblical to mourn these things. So how can I have gritty joy, joy in the midst, joy that's now and not just anticipation? Because that's a good joy to have, but I need something else, something more foundational. So point number three, and this is where the story that I started with, my math journey kind of connects. It's this realization, point number three. The root of our joy in the now right? Not the anticipation joy. The root of our joy in the now, today, now, is not what God can do for us. It's not what he can fix now. The root of our joy now is God. He is the root of the joy. My joy is not in what God can do for me, though that's certainly part of it. It's not just that. It's who he is in my life. The root of the joy now is who God is to you. And only a person that's tasted the grace of God can understand how this can be a joy that's gritty, a joy that's beyond circumstance. It's not that this other stuff that's happening doesn't hurt. But there's something that's better than the hurt. There's something that God has done for me and that he's doing in me that can overwhelm the hurt. It's not going away. It's there. But, I mean, Christ did this. Christ went to the cross. He he saw it as joy. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Like anticipating joy. But there was joy in his obedience to God as well. Did he suffer? Yes, that was real. His suffering was more than physical. It was carrying the weight of our sin, receiving the anger from the Father for our sins. That's real. And it was there. But there is joy in what he did. Gritty joy. The root of our joy in the now is not what he can do for us. It's what he is, who he is to us today, that's the epiphany. Like when I was in my math journey, I, f- I kept thinking the, the end joy, the culmination of it all is I'm going to know all this math. No. The, the joy is in the now, in the fact that I am an eternal learner of math. Well, this is true when it comes to Jesus. It's not what he can fix right now, though he may. It's what he's already fixed. (laughs) It's what he's already fixed. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. And if you are a child of God, you're not going to receive what we deserve. Because Jesus loves us that much. That's amazing. And if I could just take that gritty joy and focus it On the now, on who God is for me, even if He doesn't bring the person I love to health, even if He doesn't bring the person that I love to Jesus, even if He doesn't bring them back from their wayward ways, I can still focus on what He has done. I can have that gritty joy. So keep praying for those things to be resolved because God can fix them. Don't get me wrong. But don't let it hinder your joy in the now. Your joy in the now is in what Christ has done. What he has done for eternity and no one can undo it. The gates of hell will not prevail. That's done. Here's what's crazy. David was in the wilderness at least at two different points running from his life. King David. David. One of the instances, he was running away from Saul, the guy that was king but wasn't supposed to be king anymore. And then in the other instance, does anyone remember here? Can anyone say it from the audience? Yes. Who was Absalom, Brian? His son. David was being hunted down to be killed by his son. I'm sure David wanted... Absalom to have a change of heart. I'm sure David wanted to be spared of his life and restore all things to the right. He did. Psalm 63, scholars are divided. They don't know if it's when he was running from Saul or when he was running from Absalom. There's a lot of uh, theologians like Tim Keller, for example, who believe it's when he was running from Absalom. But Psalm 63 shows us how David chooses to focus on the now joy of who God is and not the problem that God might not fix. Here's David saying, please, save my life. I'm supposed to be the king. You told me I'm supposed to be the king of this place. Why am I running for my life? Why Why did my son turn against me? There's an answer to that. Like David screwed up, pardon the expression, like, like, he's, he's seeing the effects of his sin. But God could still do this. If God could choose it, if God chooses to do it, he could have Absalom change Absalom changes his life around. So here, here's David saying, please fix this. Bring my son back. Bring my son back. But David, a man after God's own heart, In Psalm 63, realizing or thinking, he didn't end up dying, by the way, but thinking he's probably going to die at the hands of either his son or the king of Israel after him supposing to be the actual king, here's what he says. Psalm 63, let me make sure, yes, verses 1 through 3. Oh God, he's at the end of himself. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. See, his concern first and foremost isn't the fixing of the problem. God, you are my joy. I need you. Even if Absalom rejects me the rest of his life, even if he kills me, I need you. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. We can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And here it is. This is the crazy part. This is the realization. All this time we missed a point trying to pray the problem away. We're supposed to pray God in. He says, because your steadfast, which means unconditional, your unconditional love, because your steadfast love is better than life, even if they kill me, even if they kill me, your love is better. Even if Absalom or Saul, whoever it is, even if he kills me and you don't save me, God. Even if you don't save me, even if you don't fix my marriage, even if you don't fix my problem, even if you don't heal this sick person, even if you don't bring said person back, I will praise you because your love is better than life. David says, "Fine. Don't fix it. I'm going to die." I'm praising you. You know what? I'm going to worship you right now. I'm beholding your glory because you love unconditionally. Here's David, a guy who committed murder, adultery. He's done all the wrong stuff. And he knows God loves him no matter all of that. And he says, I'm going to worship you. If you're not going to save me, that's fine. If my son's going to kill me or the king, that's fine. But you love me unconditionally, and beholding your glory is the most beautiful thing I could ever do. See, a lot of us here and outside in Redlands and around the world, in the church at large, we're at this juncture right now where we feel like, David, the situation is out of our control, and it doesn't look maybe like God is going to prevent it. We're hoping that God is going to change the course of what we're going through. We're really hoping for it. Maybe he does because, again, he did it for David. He did actually spare him, though he didn't fix the situation with Absalom. That never got fixed. Maybe, maybe this gets fixed. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe God fixes it. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But because your steadfast love, your unconditional love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's crazy. We worship our way. Out of the problem to experience that gritty joy. It's not like David forgot the pain he's experiencing. It's real, it's there. We're not like pretending to be like this happy placebo Christianity that says there's no problem, it's there. But he chooses to have gritty joy in the moment right now. In Psalm 18, David, the psalmist does this again. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horde of my salvation, my stronghold. Focus on who God is for you, not just what he can do for you. Focus on what he has done for you, guaranteed, done. I think this is why Psalm 23 Is a great example of how you can incorporate prayer, gritty joy into your prayer life. Psalm 23 is a great example of someone that's in the valley of the shadow of death and still is comforted by God because he has God alone, even if it doesn't get fixed. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's like saying the Lord is... Jesus is my shepherd, I don't need anything else. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives you peace, he, gives you, he replenishes you. He leads me bes- beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in, the path, in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. See, he doesn't take us out of the valley of death. He's in it with us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. He's in the valley of the shadow of death, but he's overflowing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's that anticipation joy. What's gonna come to be? You will be in the house of the Lord forever with the one that gives you value, meaning, purpose, satisfaction, eternal love that's not depending on circumstance. He gives you all those good things and more. He gives you beauty, He gives you glory, He sits you in the heavenly realms with Him, He calls you a royal priest. You're a child of God. Jesus says something crazy in John 17. He loves us the way he loves Jesus. Woo. Check that out. It's in John 17. Like that is steadfast love. We don't deserve the love that the Father has for Jesus. We don't deserve that. But his love is steadfast and it's better than life. As the band comes up, I'm not... I, I, I want to reiterate, please understand, I'm not saying ignore the problem. It's there. But be like David, who knows that there's a coming glory. There's an anticipation of something that's to be fixed in the future, and that's a sure promise. But more importantly, like David, even when your life is about to end and your son or the king may be about to kill you, You can behold his glory, and you can say your love is better than all this, even if it doesn't get fixed. That's hard. But may we pray that the Holy Spirit has a radical transforming effect in our lives where we become more like Jesus, who can live that out. We can't, but in his power, in his mercy, in his grace, we can live that out. So as the ushers prepare the tithes and offerings that are about to come down, I want us to move into a time of prayer. And I want to ask you that as we pray right now, if you are experiencing your David moment, and there's a problem that's not getting fixed, and you don't know if maybe God fixes it, maybe he doesn't, to just really tune your heart into who God is, who he is, and what he's done for you already. Let's pray. Father, uh, our problems are real and I know that you, you, you even teach us to be sorrowful yet rejoicing. They're real so we, we do feel sadness. We do feel hurt. They involve either ourselves or people that we love dearly. People that we've invested our lives into. They involve sickness We want them to be healed, and they may or may not be healed. And we're not praying, Father, that you would remove the sorrow, for we know that in our suffering we become more like Jesus. We know that suffering is a part of our pilgrimage, of our journey, of our growth. We know that. But we're asking that you would transform us into a people that have David's heart, that in spite of... Of that situation that we're dealing with, you would give us a gritty joy that's focused on you. That we wouldn't just pray that you fix the problems. Yes, we pray that, but that we would pray that we would feel your love, that we would get more of you. And so right now, each of us, Father, I'm going to leave a few seconds open for us to think about that situation And to look towards you as someone that can fix it, but also someone that is sufficient. Give us peace, Father. Gritty joy, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. May we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. May we be constant in prayer moving the problem to you, not trying to control it because, yeah, we do our part, but we can't control it. May we rejoice in hope, the hope of having more of you and of the coming glory that will fix everything eventually. Teach us to do this, to be more like you, Father. We pray all of this as uh, ushers come forth, and we ask that now for the tithes and offerings that they would be an opportunity for worship. So often, there, are, there have been in religious institutions that have turned tithes and offering into a mockery that have made it about gain and about earning things. But for us, biblically, we know that tithes and offerings are an opportunity for worship. To declare that you are the provider, you are the giver, and to let go and say, you will continue to provide as we need. And you will continue to provide for the purposes that you have in our lives. And we now want to bless others and build the body up, and that's why we give for all those purposes. May the tithes and offerings, Father, miraculously be multiplied for the sake of your kingdom and nothing else. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.